follow you and to give our wills to your own. Um, you remind us that the demons knew you, that they could speak a language, um, and that we cannot stand divided. And all that we do, help us to give ourselves to you, the unity of our church, um, to do all that we can within it, particularly within it, and outside of it, um, to help protect that unity. Um, you are not divided, you are whole, your love is one, and all that we do, help us to overcome the divisions within ourselves, put them away, so that we can be one with you in spirit, completely. Ask a special grace for um, Tom. Uh, be with him. The difficulties he's having with his eyes, help him recover. Um, be with Michael a week off. Um, and Angela, this is this morning? Uh, be with her in her operation. Watch over her, protect her, let the doctor's hands, their minds be sure and firm. Um, ask a special blessing on Kathy in her um, surgery. Um, let her heart quiet, trust in you, whatever the outcome is. Uh, help her to work hard in her recovery and get back to us because we will miss her. Watch over Belinda and her school group all of the kids and counselors, let it be a good retreat for all of them, a time of growing closer to you. Um, and ask a special grace for the people on the East Coast. Um, let a spirit of resourcefulness and prudence guide what they do. Um, put away anything reckless or cavalier in the face of a storm like that. I ask a special blessing on Christopher and Kayla and their kids, protect them, and particularly be with Christopher in the work that he's doing. We ask all of this um, that we learn from these things. Um, Bonaventure said that virtues are carriers of graces. They help prepare us, open us more fully to graces. And all that we're learning about our natural virtues strengthen our efforts to take them seriously, to put them into work in our own lives. All of the efforts of self-denial and respect. We ask all of this in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Did you fix it? <coughs> you pushed the wrong button. <laughs> How did I push? It says record, but shouldn't be getting this on, on recording right now. Don't what? Don't. I, <laughs> 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 mm. Let's start. Um, let's do, let's see, let this start here. Yeah, just a quick, just a quick business note before we look at the poems this morning. This is it. For the review, for those of you who came in late um, and wanted to go back, um, next week we start Shakespeare, we're going into the modern world. If you got the note that we sent out, you know that next week is going to be a huge, huge meeting. It's going to be a background to the modern world and it's, it's going to give me a chance to set off this 
classical medieval world that we've been in um, against modernity so that we, all of us can see more clearly what's at stake in what we're doing because it really is going to be a different world. So next week is crucial and it'll be a background. Um, I want to just throw out two teaser questions here for you guys. Um, we're going to do two plays on Venice. Those of you who are, who are here for Dante know that Dante was born in 1265 and Florence was founded in 1265, the year of his birth. And you know from Dante that Florence is the first um, commercial regime of the modern kind in our world. It's different from the ancient commercial republic, Athens, in the ancient world. It's very, very different. So the, those of you who read Dante know that, that hell and purgatory and heaven are situated in that world so that Dante's revealing us to ourselves. He's showing us in the, in the modern commercial world. You know that everything that took place in Dante's world was political and almost economic. That all of the battles that define people's lives were <coughs> in, involved the battles between church and state because the, the, the Renaissance had produced these new regimes. The Holy Roman Empire had broken apart. The feudal world was disappearing. And um, what was coming out of Italy were these new republics and people fighting for their freedom, not to be under the church directly, because those of you who are here saw the problems that resulted from that, and not to be under the emperor. The, the people were giving we're creating these new regimes um, that, that gave people a new kind of freedom, political freedom. And at the heart of it was this um, spirit of, of um, risking and entrepreneurship. Venice came into existence as we know it uh, roughly in that same time. It's, it's got a different history and it didn't take the same form that Florence did. But it, it in itself is an example of the modern commercial regime, probably in some ways more than Florence. Shakespeare knew that. I mean, he, he I, I don't like using the word genius, but I don't, know, I don't know of another word that can describe those men, what Dante and Shakespeare saw. Shakespeare is going to do two plays on Venice. He, he knew that because that's the modern world. Um, and what's interesting is when we read those plays, we find out that there's this inherent vulnerability in Venice, that there's something going on in Venice that puts it at, at risk of being destroyed from within itself. And it doesn't turn on what's comic and tragic, because we're going to read a comedy and a tragedy set in Venice. That's not what's at issue. What's at issue is something internal to the regime. So I'm just going to ask you, you know, tease this question out, see if you can find it. What's going on in Venice that potentially could lead to Venice's own destruction. Should I give this away? Antonio is going to take out a loan for his friend. And it's interesting that the, the, the motive for asking for the loan from his friend Bassanio is that he wants to woo Portia. It's love. He, need, he, needs, he needs money. Why are you shaking your head? He, he needs money. He needs money to woo this woman. And Antonio has all of his ships at sea, 
So he borrows from Shylock. And Shylock makes the conditions of the bond this in seemingly innocuous, a pound of flesh. He says, I don't expect to get it back. A pound of flesh. Well, what I can't tell you what happens, but it's going to put Antonio, who is the merchant, at risk. If he dies, it means Venice dies. The whole commercial enterprise fails at its heart. So the question that I want to ask is, what saves it? There's something in Venice that's potentially self-destructive from within. So that's Merchant of Venice. Othello has a very different problem, but it shows this is even this is sinister. There, there's a dark evil. There's, there's a, the, the two most evil characters in Shakespeare are um, Rit, Richard the Third and Iago, and Iago is by far he, he's he's probably the most sinister villain in all of literature, all of literature. I'm not kidding, I'm not kidding. And he's a product, he's a product of the commercial regime. So in Othello we get a very different danger, but it threatens everybody. So what is it about the commercial regime, Venice, that puts it at risk in Merchant of Venice, in a comedy, and puts it at risk in a tragedy in Othello? There's something in our regime that is a danger to us. And it's from in within. So let me just throw that out. See if you can find it. Quiz next week. <laughs> okay. That's so that's just to look forward. So next week we start Shakespeare in the modern world. Um I'm, I'm going to come back to this. I want to come back to that. Let's do the poems. The Shakespeare sonnets and, the, and Petrarch. Oh, can I... Bev has always been so kind. She's the in-resident baker. She's forever been bringing food and um, she, she's actually a temptation to me because I like her cookies so much and I'm really struggling to get my weight down. Um, well, I didn't bring cookies today. You brought Our something worse. <laughs> anyway, I'd like to, if, if I can, if, if I could ask for volunteers to either supplement what she does or, or take turns so that so that um, different people could donate something. Can, would somebody be willing to bring something next week? Somebody who hasn't brought something before? I'll do it. Follow you will? That'd be great. Okay, Thanks. and I won't bring anything now. I just, it would be good to give you, you your I'll bring things. <laughs> <laughs> I believe I'll be borrowing your pen. Here. <laughs> Okay. Thank you. We like the horse. Thank you. The reason for doing these poems, I hope, will become clear in the course of our time here because they both relate to the feminine archetypes and particularly Calypso. So, 
Um, just keep that in mind. Remember that. That there's something going on with Calypso that's larger than it seems. So she's a, an image of something feminine. You know how important that is for the Odyssey. So I'll come back to it, but just keep that in mind, okay? Because she, remember, she represents this, this image of some transcendent quality to, peculiar to women, the beauty that women have. And, and I hope everybody's clear that it doesn't always equate with um, attractiveness, that women have it. It's what sets one of the differences between men and women. But where, but where a woman is, has that beauty, the power of it's unmistakable. We know that from the Hollywood culture. If we didn't know it anywhere else. Um, so I, I put two sets of poems together, one from Petrarch and one from Shakespeare. I'm not going to read the Petrarch, okay? Is everybody with me? I'm not going to read the Petrarch. Petrarch is, is looked at as one of the first humanists who's at the beginning of the Renaissance. Okay? What to do with that table? I, what to do with that? No, what to do? <laughs> he's one of the first humanists of the Renaissance. There's always somebody in a class, you know? <laughs> Big surprise. No, it's the two of them. Don't point at him. Everything was fine until she came in. Um, Petrarch was one of the first humanists, and I, I don't want to go into this except to say this very, very briefly. For those of you who know Dante, you'll know this. Dante had a vision of a woman when he was a young boy. That woman was Beatrice. He saw her at a very early age, and it awakened, it aroused in him this overpowering desire. In the, in the Commedia, he calls it Eros, that old net, the net of Venus, the desires that were awakened. He saw in her what he came to understand as an image of the Trinity. Now my wife is in it. <laughs> what? What to do with? Um, it was she was an image of the Trinity, and he understood that the beauty just wasn't beauty; that it's radiance, it's effulgence, that the power that was revealed in that had its source in the Trinity in God's nature, that beauty is a transcendent. It's important to remember that because we learn, for those of you who've done the Divine Comedy, that um, two-thirds of the trip, Virgil's Dante's guide, remember? He's a pagan, because Dante recognized that Virgil understand our hu understood our human nature almost better than anybody. If you remember, Plato and Aristotle are in hell, Good people are there. We know that virtue by itself cannot get a person into heaven. But it's still a good. The, the, remember, the pagans are there, in the, in the virtuous pagans in that level. So they're not suffering punishments the way everybody else is. They just don't have hope or faith or charity. They lack that. Virgil is the guide. With all the ancient sages, Dante saw him as being the wisest. At the top of purgatory... Beatrice begins to come to him, and Dante looks back to Virgil. For those of you who remember that, it's like looking back for help because he's facing something dangerous. When he turns back, Virgil's gone. 
And Beatrice comes and then you remember what happens. She scolds him. Just she's merciless in what she does with him. And Beatrice helps Donnie finish the journey. She she's the one who who guides him the last third of the way up the Paradiso because Virgil's incapable of showing the transcendent realities that she does. Okay, now there can be no confusion about the kind the nature of his love because when he turns back for, to Virgil and Virgil's gone and turns around to see Beatrice, he sees an image of Christ. We know that from the Griffin episode, those of you who've read it. There can be no confusion here. He looks at her not with the erotic love that a man looks at a woman in the earth. He sees in her an image of Christ. And she will complete the rest of the leg. She will reveal him the re- all that's intelligible, that, that humans can receive about divine mysteries in a way that Virgil couldn't. It's important to see that here with Petrarch because Petrarch takes Laura as his beloved. He writes the first sonnet cycle of the Renaissance. Shakespeare's going to do the same thing following Petrarch. Shakespeare knew Petrarch well. All the, all the artists of Europe would have known him well. But the difference is this, Laura is not an image of Christ. And every one of Petrarch's poems, he uses these elaborate conceits to express his emotions. And in every poem, his emotions almost spill over. He can't feel enough, okay? So in Laura, we have an, an idealization of the beloved, this beautiful woman that is the source, the cause of of this great love that's awakened in Petrarch. Now, the difference is really important because that's a humanistic love. It's not like the love that Dante feels for Beatrice. Is that clear? Okay, it's crucial to see that. (coughs) Every sort of emotion man is capable of feeling, almost, is awakened by Laura. But it's very different from the image of the divine that Beatrice carries in her and all the supernatural things that are set in motion in Dante. So that difference is really important here. Is that clear? Okay, now having said that, okay, I'm not going to read the Petrarchan poems. I just want to read the Shakespeare. And I'm going to read a couple just to give you an experience of Shakespeare and to show you something he's doing with poetry. And I want to end on Sonnet 130. Now Shakespeare wrote a sonnet cycle. 150, I can't, 154 poems, I can't remember, a sonnet cycle, and it involved a youth and a dark lady and Shakespeare. So there's a love triangle going on here, twisted, very dark in some ways. Apparently the woman has attractions for the young man, the the young man seems to have all these artistic gifts, Shakespeare looks at him as a potential poet, and and if, if you keep this in mind, you'll know how important it is, because Shakespeare understood that the poet could do things other people could not. We've seen that again and again. We're going to see it in Shakespeare when we finally look at his plays. So it's a dark, it's a dark, twisted drama going on in, in his sonnet cycle. But it leads to a great, great variety of poems, of sonnets. Okay? Um, on the back of the page, sonnet one, 116, is a, is, a, is a sonnet that's very often read at marriages. I've heard it, I was asked to read it at a marriage once, and I've heard it a number of times at, at weddings. 
I'm going to read this very quickly, and then I want to set next to it 129, because they're about two different things. One is about a faithful love, and the other is about lust. Now, when I read both of them, pay attention to the way the lines unfold. Notice how in 116, the lines match up with thoughts. They're calm, complete, deliberate. They're pauses. It's very meditative. And watch the way 129 unfolds because it's jagged, jerky, twisted. Oppositions, two things set against each other. Because remember, you all know what onomatopoeia is. Remember the flight of the bird in the wind hover? Onomatopoeia means the sounds of the lines imitate the action of, of the poem, what's going on. Yeah? So think, hear the poem because you'll hear something like music. It'll be the difference between a music that's very meditative and slow and balanced against a music that's abrupt, eruptive, clashing, okay? So keep that in mind because Shakespeare is a poet. He's working with music. He's, he's helping us to feel things that a prose writer wouldn't wouldn't get us to, okay? Psalm 116. And notice, notice all the knots, all the negatives in this poem. Because one of the ways of defining something is talking about what it's not as a way of getting to what it is, okay? Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with a remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ nor no man ever loved. So, Sonnet 129, this is about lust. The expense of spirit and a waste of shame is lust in action, until action, lust is perjured, murder, bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust. Enjoyed, now watch how things are set against each other. Enjoyed no sooner, but despise it straight, past reason hunted, and no sooner had, past reason hated, as a swallowed bait, on purpose laid to make the taker mad, mad in pursuit and in possession so, had having and in quest to have extreme, a bliss in proof and proved a very woe, before a joy proposed behind a dream. All this the world well knows, yet none knows well to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. Do you hear the difference, the lines? Just powerful what he does with words. Um, um, remember I told you in the Italian sonnet, remember the Italian sonnet has an octave, eight lines, rhyming lines, and a sestet. We saw that with Hopkins. Shakespeare wrote the English sonnet. He developed a new sonnet form. It consists of three quatrains, three exempla, three different examples of the same thing, followed by a conclusion, a couplet. Now hold on to this, listen to this. Most people don't see this and it's amazing, they don't, but this is, this is amazing because this marks one of the changes in modernity because 
one of the marks of modernity is we leave behind a metaphysical view of the world, the invisible things. A science about what's underneath physics, beyond physics. We leave a metaphysical view behind to go into a scientific empirical, an empiricist that deals more with the senses and the kind of knowledge they give us. The loss of that metaphysical worldview is one of the crippling things about our age, so it's not a small thing. What Shakespeare's doing in his sonnet actually involves this, it throws a light on it. He gives three different examples, three exempla of the same thing. So we get different variations, but they could not be about the same thing unless they shared being. And being is the, the proper subject of metaphysics. And you all know what being is in the Old Testament. I am the am. God is being. He always is, uncreated. And all things participate in being, insofar as we have existence. We've lost the ability to make connection between those two things. But all things in nature share in being. Okay? So Shakespeare is roughly working out of that view, even though it's leaving. He marks the threshold where, it's, where we're losing it. So in his sonnets, we, we get these three different quatrains, three different exempla, three different examples of something having to do with the same thing, and then a conclusion, which means we, we can make a universal statement because there are universals. The Catholics should believe that. The rest of the world doesn't. The Protestant world doesn't. The secular world doesn't. Because we believe in being, that there are universals that the mind can grasp. Okay? Is that clear? So we see it here. Look, in, in 116, he gives, if you take the four lines, take three groups of four lines, each one of the minds, love, finds, remove, right? There's the first one. Mark, shaken, bark, taken. There's the second quatrain, right? So... First, he talks about it in terms of um, um, alter, alternating, removing. The next one is um, the star, the fixed star in the heavens. The next one is love's not time's fool. He talks about the sickle. And then he gives a, a conclusion, a couplet. If this be error and upon me proved, I never... Same thing with um, 129, except 129 is a little bit different. But in um, Sonnet 73... Behold, hang, cold, sang. He's talking about things um, dying. The winter in the first quatrain, yeah, that time of year. In me thou seest the twilight of... Then he's talking about dawn, a day passing. Twilight. Hmm? Twilight. Twilight. Sorry, yeah, twi thanks. And, and then sleep and its relation to death, because sleep is like a prelude to death. It's a shadow. So he takes three different aspects of nature in which death is that the thing's passing. Because the argument that he's making to his love, beloved is you should love that more dearly, which you're about, whatever it is you're about to lose, should cause you to love more dearly. Whenever, isn't it true, I mean, if somebody, if so, a beloved, a spouse is on a sickbed, I mean, don't we feel the dearness of something whenever we feel a threat? It's more immediately a part of our heart. Um, so he takes three different exempla, but they all, they all share in the same thing. And then he makes a couplet, a universal statement about it. So Sonnet 73. 
That time of year thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold bare room choirs where late the sweet bird sang. Winter's coming and spring is disappearing. In me thou seest the twilight of such day. He's getting old, he's saying to his mistress. In me thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night doth take away, death's second self that seals up all in rest. Sleep comes, the day passes. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie as the deathbed whereon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. The sense that each one of us reaches a point in our life where we're on the ashes of the life that we've lived. You know, it's consumed us, whatever our work has been. It's expiring, it's, it's passing away. The glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie, our whole life right now rests on what we have done, what we have been, that we're reaching a point of leaving this world. As the deathbed whereupon it must expire, consume with that which it was nourished by. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well which thou must leave ere long. Beautiful, no? What he does with language. Okay, this is the one I wanted to get to, and this is the one I want you to hold on to. Now remember this Petrarchan tradition and this love poetry that grew out of it, where he's looking at Laura for her beauty and praising her, and then you have to read these, take them home and read them, because you'll see his emotions go on. He, he describes his emotion in terms of storms and tempests and ships going down and crashing against rocks, and those are tip, what we call Petrarchan <coughs> conceits, metaphors, conceits. This is Shakespeare responding to Petrarch and the Italian Renaissance. Okay. <clears throat> this is his poem to his beloved. Now remember, I want you to keep this in mind, related to Calypso, because Calypso is this image of, remember, she offers Odysseus immortality. She is this beautiful creature, and, and um, she has him for eight years. And remember, Don, Odysseus cannot get free of her without help from the gods. Man can't do this on his own. Odysseus can't get free from Circe, he can't get free from Calypso without the help of the gods. The men in this classroom today, be careful. <laughs> Most of all, when she looks innocent, Don. <coughs> I understand. <laughs> this is Shakespeare. Son at 1.30. My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, Black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damasked red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. In the same perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. And yet by heaven, I think my love is rare as any she belied with false compare. Now you can hear that he's responding to Petrarch in every line. Because obviously, Petrarch is comparing his beloved to the sun. Um, 
these red lips she has, these breasts that are enchant enchantments, roses, he's comparing Petrarch, his love to the beauty of a rose, the cheeks, the color in her cheeks, the, her breath, it's got to be like perfume. Um, and she, she's a goddess and probably her feet don't touch the ground. I mean, you can hear Petrarch, in every, right? You can hear him in every line. It's a, ba it's a backstory to every line. And Shakespeare's playing off against that as a way of satirizing, parody. And, and listen to the conclusion. Which is more real? The man who loves his wife, by, and by the way, the reason I'm, those of you who didn't take Dante are going to miss this, but those of you who did Dante, remember the siren. It's because he got it from Homer. The siren in Dante is when Dante gets to the, close to the top of purgatory, <clears throat> his work is almost over. The siren gets him, and Virgil has to shake him violently to wake up because he can't get free of it on his own. When the siren first appears, she's described as being sallow, yellow, lamed, ugly. Dante begins to stare at her, and he, and he says, as he stared at her, he began to loosen her lips, and she began to sing. The more she sang, the more enchanted he got with her. So we know that the power that she has over him is a power he gives her. The church calls that idolatry. That we, that we, it's, it's, and it's a function of our pride. We, we vest these images with such importance because it's a way of validating, increasing our own importance to love this thing. Remember we talked about all the upper stages of purgatory. Food, sex, things. We love those things too much because it's a way of making ourselves more important, of answering our own self-importance. So the siren is an image of idolatry, the power something has over it because we desire it too much. And remember, if purgatory is anything, it's learning to get rid of those desires, to, be, to become who God made us to be. So we can, now, so the question here, which is more real? Petrarch and this idealized image of this woman he loves, or, or Shakespeare, and I'm going to read it once more, just for the effect of it, okay? My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damasked, red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress when she walks treads on the ground, and yet by heaven I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. Okay? Now remember, according to our view, I'm speaking as a Christian here, we believe that um, God made us in his image. So there is a natural beauty, a natural goodness. We somehow reflect him. Um, and the Trinity, and that should be somewhere present in our makeup. Um, so there is a natural beauty that, that has a worth in itself. What's at issue in these two poems is, in, in Petrarch you have an, an example of somebody who exaggerates that in the direction of something idealized. Shakespeare's making fun of it, you know, at the other extreme to answer it. 
But his answer is, and yet by heaven I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. What he's saying is um, to love what's really there, not what we idealize. Not what we project out onto these things to make them something that they're not. So there's the poetry for today. Hi, Tom. Is your eye okay? Yes. Good. Good. Glad to hear that. I can still see you. Yeah. <laughs> what? Still see, see me? <laughs> that may not be good. Okay, let's start. Before we start, I want to just point out something. Tom, I reminded everybody we're going to start Shakespeare next week. Next week is going to be a huge, huge meeting. But for the sake of this group, I want to just point out something because I know some of you. Um, weren't here for Virgil and the Divine Comedy. In my mind, it's a loss. Part of me wants to go ahead because I'm sorry that those of you who weren't here won't get it. But, but I want to just suggest something here before we look at what we're doing. We've read the Iliad. We're finishing the Odyssey. After the Odyssey, last year, we did the Aeneid and the Divine Comedy. So we saw a whole tradition unfold. And I want to put it in a short capsule to, to look forward to next week. In the, in the ancient epic, we're, we're dealing principally with a masculine theme. Something given to man in his physical strength and in his abilities that helps him to deal with evil in the world. Let me just put it succinctly that way. In the Iliad um, and the Odyssey, I suggested that what we see in the early epics is works about a founding, a refounding, that each of the epic it belongs with Exodus and Genesis, God founding a people, calling them out. That we see in the <clears throat> early epics a founding going on that's really remarkable and that lines up, dovetails with Scripture. In this sense, the Iliad is about um, answering a disorder that masks man's true nature. That what we learn in the Iliad is that there's this intrinsic nature to man. He has an order to his soul, an actual order. And people have um, hurt that image by the way they treat it. So people tend to value the human person in terms of the booty that he can acquire, particularly with his power. Women are disparaged, so are men in the Iliad, yeah? They kill them for their booty, their things, their objects. What we learn is that there's an, this intrinsic order and it's important with respect to questions of justice because if we're to give somebody his due, how can we do it if we don't know what our order is? So the war goes on on that basis and, it, and we see a fundamental difference between East and West. That the West is the, is the civilization that has a sense of what's due because they have a sense of this intrinsic order. It's not determined by booty or wealth. And Achilles is the one who steps outside of that. And once he does, nobody can touch him. In the Odyssey, we see a further development of that theme. It's not just the intrinsic worth that a man has that most people don't see, and, and the founding that takes place. And remember I said, that founding depends on who reads it well, because do the men in the, in the book on the battlefield see it? Not a one. Um, in the Odyssey, 
Homer enlarges on the theme because he takes his theme as his theme in the Odyssey, this intrinsic worth be between a man and a woman. And what he's dealing with in the Odyssey are the, the disorders between the sexes, that there is this fundamental problem. It has a mythic dimension because remember he said, He said, he said, um, where am I? Oh, in the, in the Odyssey, remember there's that comment when, or sorry, it's in the Iliad when Hera goes to get help from Aphrodite. She says that um, Okeanos, one of the first gods, and Tethys are estranged, <coughs> that they don't lie in the same bed together. So they had this sense that even in the mythic beginnings, there was this disorder between the sexes. We understand it as one of the effects of the fall, original with Adam and Eve. So the Greeks had this sense that there was something in our mythic makeup that was wrong in the way we are sexually with one another. And the Odyssey is the exploration of that relationship. And what we see is that, it'll be the conclusion here, that, that Odysseus and Penelope step in the same way that Achilles stepped outside of that honor code to make it right, we're going to see that something comes to Odysseus and Penelope that takes them out of that past. So that there's this kind of perfection or completion possible to man and woman, just as there is this, this perfected kleos, this honor that's possible to man in the Iliad. So what we see is, um, if we move from the Iliad to the Odyssey, enlarging spheres of goodness, influence, power, self-understanding, we go from the individual to a couple, okay? Now what's interesting is when we move from the Iliad and the Odyssey to the Aeneid, the focus of the Aeneid becomes the city and the common good. Aeneas is called out to found this city and we learn that it's different from all these other cities because all these other cities die. If you've done the Aeneid, you know from our work together, they're all dying out. Rome is different because its roots go back to Dardanus in the Iliad in that fight between Aeneas and um, Patroclus, where it says the line of Dardanus will never die out. The founder, the ultimate founder, the source of Rome was this ultimate thing. It will not die out. So in the Aeneid, we have an image of the eternal city. This is the beginning of our faith. It's Rome. That's amazing to me. When I look at this and put it all together, I'm just, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I'm stunned. That, it, that Homer could have seen this, that Virgil could have seen it. We're on our way to Catholicism. It's on our way to Rome. Rome will never die out. It's the eternal city. Does that mean bricks and mortar? No, absolutely not. Rome is that which is always, from the, from the Rome is that which is always coming. It's here and not here. Not yet. We don't see the, the walls go up at the end of the Aeneid. But we know from everything, those of you who are here that did it, and, and I hope, I mean, if some of you who haven't read it will read it, but you know it ends with Turnus, or, um, Aeneas killing Turnus. We don't see the walls going up. Because Virgil knows that there will always be violence, wars, that Rome is, Rome is always under construction. And Dante will answer that in the Divine Comedy. So, if we take this line, what we see are these enlarging spheres of understanding who we are as a people. From this individual worth to marriage, 
to the sense of the common good being more important than our, than our own individual selves. So Aeneas as a hero is a person who's constantly having to deny himself, to sacrifice him. He has to give up his past. One of the ironies, those of you who read it, remember when Odysseus comes home, his nurse is there, Heraclea is there, she sees his scar. When Aeneas gets to Rome, the nurse dies. It's Virgil's tough mind said when we did the class, this is not for squeamish people, faint-hearted people, because what Virgil makes clear is that you cannot come to Rome without constant acts of self-denial. What does our church constantly ask of us? Give ourselves up. Christ again and again. So there are all these intimations of Christ in this whole tradition. It's, all, it's like they're all preparing in an amazing way. And then we get to the Divine Comedy, and what we see is Dante takes this whole tradition. Virgil's his guide. Virgil's the one who takes him through hell. We cannot get to purgatory if we don't learn to see our sins, if we don't learn to be honest about them. That's the fundamental act at the center of our faith. How can we correct our sins if we don't see them? And how can we see them if we don't have the courage or the faith to see them, to want to see them? So Dante has to go down into hell. When he sees hell, then he can begin his ascent up purgatory. And go on. Okay. Um, and he, he goes a purgatory to answer them. Remember the lower sins are the more spiritual, pride, envy, wrath, sloth is the middle, and then avarice, gluttony, lust. And what I, for those of you who remember I said, the lower sins are the, are the sins that come from making ourselves more important than other people. Pride, envy, wrath. We think we're better than other people. Envy is um, we don't want somebody to have something we've got or we don't have, sorry. And in wrath, we, we want to hurt somebody for hurting us. So there's a self-centeredness to all those. We make ourselves too important. All the upper sins are making other things more important than they should be as a way of making ourselves important. Avarice, gluttony, lust. So pride is at the root of all of them, that if we don't put our pride away, we will never get rid of the sins that plague us. So Dante takes this whole world and carries it forward, that everything that meant anything, the individual, the intrinsic worth of a person, the, the relation of marriage, the city, all get taken into the Divine Comedy and Dante's return to the Father and to Christ, to God. So that was the tradition. That's what we did um, to bring us to Shakespeare. So I just, before I leave this group, since you weren't here to do it all, I just, if any of you can, you've got the audio on, on the church website, and you can do the Aeneid and the Divine Comedy. There's a lot there. But next week we're starting Shakespeare. So this brings us to the modern world, and this is where we'll, this is where we'll start up next week. So let me stop for a second, because I know that's... Rush. Merchant of Venice. We we'll do the two Venetian plays, Merchant of Venice and Othello. Then we'll do Hamlet. It's a sort of Protestant play. And I only mean that in the sense that Shakespeare was. It, Hamlet goes to Wittenberg, which is where Luther hung up his theses, and it's a it's a 
it's a Protestant, the best way to explain this is it's his awareness of what the Protestant, the difficulties the Protestant mind introduces to the modern world. And he looks at it squarely. Um, we'll do that and then we're gonna end on Winter's Tale, which I think is his greatest play. It's about forgiveness and it's stunning, it's just stunning, stunning. What I'd like to do, if we can do this on the, when we do Winter's Tale, is have a, um, a potluck up here and watch the film together. Get together and I'll, I'll give a half hour talk on it and watch the film and then come back and talk about it. I think it'll be, because Shakespeare should be watched. He, it's, he's a dramatist. It should, we shouldn't be reading him in our heads. We should be, but it's too much, so. Let me stop. I'm going to do Chevalier. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. It's really true. Sorry, I mean, there's a lot of work there, but Virgil's his guy. Virgil meant so much to him. And you've, all, you've got that on all, that I, on all the audio tapes. I make that pretty clear, because it's... You know, okay. If you've read the Odyssey and you've not read the Iliad, you're going to miss a lot. If you've, if you've read the Aeneid, and you haven't read the Iliad and the Odyssey, you're going to miss a ton. If you read the Divine Comedy, and you haven't read the Aeneid, it's a, it's a tradition that unfolds. You know, it's, it, it should be so much a part of our faith, and it's not today. We, just, we don't carry the past with us very well in our world. What, what translation did you use for the Aeneid? It was the Aeneid. I can't remember. I'll write you. Okay. I'll write you. Thank you. Can't remember. The Aeneid. I can't remember if it was Fitzgerald. I think it was Fitzgerald. I can't remember. No questions? <clears throat> Let's go. Ready to go to finish up the Odyssey? Okay, let's start. Um, just a couple quick schemes. Oops. up with the destruction of Troy. The Iliad opened in the ninth and a half year of the Trojan War. And it's completed in the action of the story. We don't get um, a story about the destruction of Troy until we get to Scaria when, when Odysseus tells the story and we learn from Demodocus, the singer there, who sings of the Trojan War. And then we get a hint of it. But it won't really be till Virgil that we actually get the description of what happens. The Odyssey opens in the ninth and a half year. Here, Odysseus is with Calypso. He's been with her for eight years. Hermes will come to set him free. Athena will go to Telemachus um, to set him off in search of his father. And then um, Odysseus gets free and comes to Scaria 
where um, he tells the stories and then the Flanagans take him home and we have the homecoming here. So that's roughly it, but a couple of things to, to hold on to. In the Telemachi, the first opening, the four chapters, we get, um, we get three different cities, three different marriages, um, and we see that each one of them has its own particular pathos. If we were to write a poetry about it, I think that's what Homer's got in, a pathos, it would be the pathos of the, of the old heroic code. And the pathos of, I call it sufficiency, they've got nothing but wealth and they're miserable. And the pathos of a home without a father, they're all under the wounds of the past. They're all suffering, they're all sad. What, what we immediately learn are all these homes, these families, these marriages, are under these burdens from the past. So one of the questions that Homer's dealing with, here as in the Iliad, how do you, can you escape the wounds of the past? Or do you live out your life underneath them, bearing them? And remember, Odysseus is a hero called long-suffering Odysseus long-enduring Odysseus. As a hero, he gives us an image. Remember I talked about suffering. S suffering means, suffering, the word means to bear up. It comes from the Latin safari, to bear. And we get the English word fertile. Safari, fertile. So that we know that through suffering, a form of fertility, some good will be produced. And wherever people want to avoid it, very often they're, they're missing. For our world, according to us and our faith, we believe grace has come to us. It's the last thing any of us wants. We want to avoid suffering all the time. We want to do everything we can to run away from it. But at the center of our faith is this belief that if we open ourselves to it, that God will be there in some way. Some good will come out of it. Um, so they're all under these burdens from the past. That's one of the things that's important to hold on to. The other is that remember the Phaeacians, if I put Ithaca here, the Phaeacians and the Cyclops lived next to each other in the distant past. They were both beloved by the gods, but the Phaeacians left because they said the Cyclops were too brutal. And we see in the Phaeacians and the <coughs> Cyclops the two extremes by which we're to measure everything in the book. And what we, what we will learn when we look at Odysseus is that he's a new kind of hero because he, he helps us understand what virtue is. What virtue is, is a mean between extremes. Aristotle is going to make this really clear in his um, ethics, but Homer's the one that laid it out. It's important to see this in a lot of ways. Remember, the Phaeacians were a people given to techne. Techne. They lived in this beautiful community which showed signs of art. Hephaestus was the god who made it. Art everywhere. It's, it's an image of how technology can overcome contingencies. It helps remove people from a contingent world and all of the disorders contingencies bring to us. Yeah. So they're described as being away from the bow and arrow, from problems. I suggest that that's an image of the ideal of um, suburbia. That in, and in some ways, it's, it's not good 
because it removes them from the world of contingencies, problems, suffering. The Cyclops are their mere opposite. They're brutal, primitive. They don't, they don't make things at all. There's no, there's no technology in their world. And it's monarchical in some sense. Each Cyclops is the ruler of his own family. They have no sense of institution, no laws, no sense of a common good. So in some sense, they're mere reverse images. And Odysseus is the one who has to learn to deal with all of these disorders in order to arrive at a virtue. And I suggested then that the virtues for Odysseus as a new kind of hero are um, prudence, fortitude or, or courage, justice, what am I missing? Temperance. Prudence. He knows exactly, the prudent man <coughs> knows exactly what to do under whatever circumstances he meets. I hope that's clear because we, we meet different kinds of circumstances and they force out of us different responses that we have to learn to do different things to, to bring a good out of them. So prudence is the virtue of knowing what to do, how to do it under circumstances. And we can't always predict because we don't know what's going to happen. So prudence is the, is the ability to move with what the world gives us and bring some good out of it. Fortitude, courage, staying with something when it gets hard because it's so easy to give up at times. Fortitude is having the courage to hold on, to stay when it gets difficult. Long-suffering Odysseus. Justice, giving somebody their due. And we've talked about this, particularly with Dante. Before. How do you give somebody their due if you haven't ordered your own soul properly? If you haven't taken the pains that you should or we should to make our own souls better, how can we bring a justice to another, give what another does? So long as we've got disorders in ourselves, it's going to be really hard to... Um, Christ, the call to love. How can we do it if we don't love right ourselves? I mean, if we're not ordered. We're and by the way, what we've learned in both books is that human beings, men and women, are there's a fundamental selfish impulse to both men and women. We see it all the way through the Iliad. We're seeing the other side of it in women here, the possessiveness of women, the, the, way, they, the way they use men. So, um, justice means giving another his due. Um, temperance means learning self-restraint, um, restraining ourselves. And in the Iliad, I mean the Odyssey, the, the, the great temptation here is the ravenous belly. I got this going. Yeah, here. Let me, I want to get this. Take, take a quick look with me. Page, page 216, because this is, um, Homer goes, over this and over this again and again, if I can quickly, I think it's 216. Oh, no, don't. Where's the 116? Sorry. Yeah, 116, I'm sorry, at the very bottom. For there is no other thing <clears throat> so shameless as to be set over the belly, but she rather uses constraint and makes me think of her, even when sadly worn. Even when he's worn out, the ravenous belt, the appetites, 
And we know what a problem that is for the suitors because they are eating, they're eating Odysseus out of house and home. Turn to page 234. Towards the top, about line 340. There is nothing worse for mortal men than the vagrant life, but still for the sake of the cursed stomach. 260. Two-thirds of the way down. Even so, there's no suppressing the ravenous belly. 270. We could go, I mean, he, he keeps going back to it. Um, 270 at the very top. Now there arrived a public beggar who used to go begging through the town, known for fame for his ravenous belly. 271, the next page. Two-thirds of the way down. And worn with sorrow to fight with the younger man, but my villainous belly... I want to be really clear here. In, in a large way, this has to do with eating because we know that the, the cyclops eat. This is really important. This, and the cyclops eat Odysseus' men. When Odysseus' companions don't get home, it's because they eat the cattle when they should have. I'm going to go back to that because that's crucial. Um, but eating, I mean, the ravenous belly doesn't just mean food and stomach. It means the appetites. And um, Don um, came up with this wonderful line to describe the suitors last week. It really was so in keeping with Homer. He called the suitors the, the horny horde. Remember the epithets that Homer gives, you know, green-eyed or gray-eyed? I mean, I mean, that would be a lot, truly a very accurate epithet, the, the horny horde. The, but Remember that the, the, the suitors are images of the Cyclops. The Cyclops is an archetypal image of what's behind these men. So when we look at each other, we tend to see human beings. We are. Homer's showing us the archetype underneath that's important for us to know to deal with ourselves. Is that clear? And the, the Cyclops are ravenous. But the, so, but the issue here just isn't eating, it's all the appetites, all of them, sexual, eating, things, possessions. But one of the hardest things for man is learning to restrain his appetites. But if he doesn't, he won't order his soul. The Cyclops are so cruel, why don't they kill each other? They're all separate families. No. Well, they don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question, Fran. Can anybody, anybody have an answer to that? That's a good question. Why don't they kill each other? They always need things bad in order to play off each other. That's almost too Buddhist. I mean, <laughs> um, Maybe there's a... Let me ask you a different... Can I... Why here? Let me. No, this is really good. Why don't the suitors kill each other? Oh, I don't know that they don't. Well, we know that in the book that they don't. But I mean, here that because that goes to why don't? Because I think there's an answer there. I don't know. If you're selfish, if you're selfish and you're working with other people, I mean, there's no honor among thieves. When it, I mean, the, ooh, ooh, house divided against itself. Here we are at the mass. But come on, why, why, don't, why don't the suitors kill each other? They want the same thing. Uh-huh. I, I think there is an answer. Strength well, and numbers. Somebody, somebody, that's numbers. a suitor. Another suitor may kill you. 
kind of right, but why don't they? Is the oh you, wait, I'm sorry. Is that the answer, Don? Self-preservation. Yeah, basically. that you're selfish enough that you want something that you 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 over you you get you you get pet you cover up your fears. If you're in a boat in a lifeboat, you you avoid killing yourself so long as you need each other to get what you want. So your selfish motives will actually protect you for a while until some crisis point comes. And then even thieves will reach a point where they will kill each other. But up to that point, the selfishness will keep them together out of fear, out of, out of a need for self-preservation, I think. <clears throat> and the ultimate question, I mean, this went right to the heart of it, a house divided can't stand. At some point, the suitors would have to come up against that. Or, I mean, they're going to kill Telemachus. One of the, one of the people in the, the parishioners in the evening group said something about why didn't Odysseus just go negotiate with the fathers, which to me isn't going to happen. Um, we know that they're going to kill Telemachus. If Odysseus came home and he had no disguise, and let's say they negotiated, and Odysseus said, I'll give you things and you go on your way, and we'll all live together happily, would they have let him go, let him alone? Don't all of you believe pretty strongly that, it, that if, if he had let them go, they're treacherous enough that they would have killed him? And if one of them had become married, what would the others have done? Try to kill him. I mean, I, so I think your an the answer, Fran, is that there is this element of self-preservation that keeps you in line for a while, intact. But at some point, we know it's going to happen. Well, after Odysseus kills the first one, they, they all start to try to negotiate with Odysseus. You know, we'll give you all these gifts and, and then some. <laughs> right. What did I do? Right. So, so we've got these schemes, okay? Um, appearances now. Let me just go to the arc here. I, I wanted to... Um, I'm going to quickly just go over some things. What in the world? I want to quickly go over some things. I wanted to read through the text some, but we don't have time this morning because I've already taken up too much time again. <clears throat> I'm going to quickly go through some things. On page 165, I'm going to just tell the story quickly to try to put some details together. Odysseus is with Circe. He's, he's telling the Phaeacians the story, and he gets a, prof, a prophecy. And then he, he describes his experience at the land of the dead. It is meeting with Tiresias. On page 170, 171, Tiresias will prophesy Odysseus' death. He says he will one day, af, after he goes home and kills the suitors, one day he will be at this land where people won't recognize oars. They won't know anything about the sea, and the sea is the irrational. It's like grace. In Dante's world, the sea is an Im actually an image of grace because it's constantly shifting. You can't get a hold of it. It's a danger. And Dante knows that. He, he says in the Paradiso, Be, beware, for, and he says, for any of you to go farther, know that you're heading into dangers because you're heading into a world of grace where things, where man doesn't have control of things. And then he comes to his mother after, after, he, after Tiresias drinks the blood and can speak to him. And then he comes to the queens of the past. Don, you had a wonderful question. Can you ask it here? 
the, the question you asked? Well, Odysseus is at the uh, island of the dead, and he's visiting with the spirits of his companions who had been killed at the Battle of Troy, and with his mother, as you point out. And then with this succession of women who most of them had mated with the gods and uh, to describe the issue of those matings. I don't understand the significance of that. That's a really good question. And I trust you're going to tell us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, can we go to the next thing now? <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. Um, Tell him red. <laughs> one, one, 178. No, he's doing, he's good. He's good. We should all be asking questions just like that. The bottom of 178, he comes to Agamemnon, and Agamemnon has nothing good to say about his wife. He calls him at the. Um, killed me there with the help of my sluttish wife. Um, so we, um, and here, I'm, I'm going to go to this. Just quickly, turn to two twenty-five. <coughs> when Athena, um, late in the book, she goes to get Telemachus, who's staying at Sparta with Menelaus, tells him to go home because if he doesn't get home, his mother may marry. And he has this to say at the bottom of 225. She's counseling to get back quickly. She says, So urge men allow us with a great war cry with all speed to give you conveyance so you will find your stately mother is still there at home, since now her father and her brothers are urgent with her to marry Eurymachus. He is outdoing the rest of suitors in the giving of gifts. There's those positions again. And have been piling up presents to win her. No property must go out of the house unless you consent to it, for you know what the mind is like in the breast of a woman. She wants to build up the household of the man who marries her, and of former children, and of her beloved and wedded husband. She has no remembrance. <clears throat> this goes to Don's question. Um, remember, this is so important. In the Iliad, men tend to use women as objects. They, they, they see them as sexual possessions. Let's just be blunt. They are sexual objects for men. So that's one of the ways in which men use women. In the Odyssey, what we see is that um, women use men in a different way. I mean, Calypso and Circe are two different figures, and I want to come to them in a minute. But generally, it's safe to say that the, the eros for women is different than it is for men. Men look at women as sexual objects. Women tend to use men for what they can do to build up their homes, the nurturing of women. So they will use men. None of the women in the underworld remember their husbands. And one of the things that's really important to remember about this is Odysseus never forgets Penelope when he's at, at um, Calypso's island. He mourns for eight years. He's a man. To, to, to become immortal is to, and we're going to get to this in a second, to become immortal is to lose his nature as a man. He won't get home. His nature as a man is to be fulfilled with his wife. <clears throat> so he's grieving <clears throat> the whole time. He does not forget her. Penelope up to this point has not forgotten him. 
When you go to the underworld, it's interesting. Two things happen. One is we, we see in, the, in all of the women, the queens that he talks with, that none of them mentions their husband. They do not remember their husbands. So they don't remember their husbands in the afterworld. And remember, one of the ways that we can learn to see our, the real nature of our actions here is by seeing their final effects. That's one of the truths we get from Dante. One of the reasons Dante sets the whole of the Divine Comedy in the afterlife is we learn to see what, what the real nature of our actions are because they take their final form. The consequences of our actions? Mm-hmm. So. What they, the end, what they lead us to, what, okay. what we become because of them. Okay. So in the underworld, the, the women don't remember the husbands. And the other interesting thing, and I, Don, my, my only thought in this is this, and I'll be interested to hear your response to this. What we see in most of those women that, that he talks with is a very strong religious spirit that they see their actions in terms of a mating with the divine, like the divine had inspired them. So in one sense we can say they seem to be religious, pious people. You know that all the way through Homer we get this critique of piety, that Prime was pious, let the gods decide. Hector was pious, I want to be like, you know, a god. That, that the women um, seem especially given to those ties with the gods, but one of the interesting effects of them is that they don't remember their husbands. They're like Hector. It's like they're overreaching themselves and, and have not fully accepted who they are as humans. In the way in which we see between Penelope and Odysseus. And I don't know if that's clear. Is that clear? We have a human nature to fulfill. Let me put it this way. We have a human nature to fulfill. In Hector, we saw a man going beyond it, trying to be something that he wasn't. What happens, in modern terms, I'm going to use it this way, when man tries to become too angelic, I think the Protestant mind is given to it because it, 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 it tries to transcend nature. According to our view, nature is a good. God made it. We, we are of the natural order. There's something supernatural into us, but we have to take care of what we do with it. Hector wants to exceed that nature. Achilles is the only man in the Iliad who accepts it. And when he does, remember what happens. A whole divine order writes itself. So something transcendent or some transcendent potential in man only comes to be realized when he accepts his limitations, who he really is as a man. When we try to be something other than what we are, we get into problems. We saw that in the Iliad. I think there's something of that going on with the queens, that there is this inordinate sense that of this, these ties with the gods, whatever inspiration goes on there, that has somehow kept them from remembering their husbands, in a sense being one with their husbands. And remember Christ. I mean, if this isn't... One of the great metaphors that run through the New Testament is this spousal love between a man and a woman, that in a marriage we have an image of the spousal love that God calls us to, that as humans we're called to love each other as he did, to complete ourselves as humans, because that's the way he made us. There, and remember, one of the arguments that I made earlier, one of the great glories that comes to humans is only when we fully accept our nature. We're humans. There's a transcendent element in our human nature, but it poses a danger to us. I don't know if that answers it. That's my sense of it, Don. Mm-hmm. 
<coughs> reading it, I didn't, I didn't see the, or didn't have the insight that you did of the absence of the husband. And the forgetting of it. Yeah. Those are, and remember, this is Athena, the goddess of wisdom. She's saying that the danger for women is they build up these homes, you know, the, the, the possession. There's the, the counterpart of the men in the Iliad, all these possessions. Men want horses, women, spears, armor, today, cars, prestige. Women. Hmm? Women. Women, right, as possessions, yeah. <coughs> and men, well, and women want men as possessions, and, but to build up their homes. It's like something nesting or nurturing in women that that has its own excessive form. So that men and women are counterparts. They, they have different kinds of failures or, or dangers that they have to face, put it that way. Um, I'm gonna jump ahead. I'm gonna, sorry to do this, but we're, um, one of the things I want, to, I want to get at here, because it goes to this Calypso problem, the next scene in the underworld is the scene in which um, Odysseus meets with um, Achilles, page 180. <coughs> mm, where am I going? Yeah. Odysseus compliments Achilles because he was the he was looked at as a god in the in the Iliad. He accomplished so much. Um, down towards the bottom, Achilles, no man before has been more blessed than you, nor ever will be. The authority that you have, um, do not grieve even in death, Achilles. So I spoke, and he in turn said, "Shining Odysseus, never try to console me for dying. I would rather follow the plow as thrall to another." one with no land allotted him and not be much to live on than be king over all the perished dead. This is extraordinary. This is Homer's critique on the Iliad. Everything that Achilles lived for was Cleos, honor. Now he's in the kingdom of the dead and he's saying, I'd rather be thrall to a farmer working land and having nothing myself than be lord over the dead. It's a way of saying how important life is so that even though he was willing to give it up and we saw how great it was, here in the next life we see him saying, I'd rather be alive. I'd rather have nothing and be alive. Than. So it's, in, it's just amazing what Homer does uh, with these things. Equally amazing is what he goes on to do in the next page. I don't want to look at it, but just to briefly mention, he's going to meet Aias. And remember in the Iliad, Aias and Achilles were the two exemplars of physical strength. They were stronger than anybody else in the whole Achaean army. Here we learn that, that Aias wanted Achilles, there's that armor. He wanted Achilles' armor. And remember, whoever wore that armor, that is, Patroclus put it on, died. Hector put it on, died. Achilles had new armor made. Aias wanted the armor. And he and Odysseus got into a quarrel and it was given to Odysseus and Aias never let go of the grudge. And I want to I want to offer this thought because it's just amazing. He goes off, holding on, nursing this grudge. I can't think. He, it's like he's, what's the word? What's the word I use? Like cherishing when you fondle something. You, 
embracing. Um, it's like hugging, huh? Covet. Yeah, coveting, and there's there's this this cherishing that armor, and he cherishes. Remember, men they want this stuff. He didn't get it. He goes into the next life with this grudge and a wound, and he goes off nursing it. Now, the reason I want to do this is not only show that Homer's critique of that, you know, in men, but in the Aeneid, because you have to read it. Every episode that Homer does, Virgil takes and reworks it in a Roman ethos. He radically changes it. In the Aeneid, Aeneas has to leave Dido. He's with her for a year. He, he gives up his calling. The gods come, and it's a scary moment. He has to get on with his work. Um, and he leaves her. She commits suicide. When he goes to the underworld, he meets Dido. He, he's carried this guilt and this wound, this shame. He didn't want to leave her, but he had to. God called him to this work. When he meets her, she's with her lover, whom she betrayed, because she promised never to marry again, and she has this affair with Aeneas. When she meets him, she's with her husband, and the two go off in this wound. It's one of the most touching wounding scenes in literature because he wants to reconcile. She will have nothing to do with it. So it's interesting to see what Virgil does with this scene with Aias, a man nursing this, coveting this armor and not letting go of the wound. And Dido, nursing this wound and going off, you know, that we see in hell that people continue, now this is crucial for this work, these people continue to hold on to the wounds of the past. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to rush ahead because I'm way behind time. Odysseus comes home, the Phaeacans take him home, and you remember what happens when they get off shore of Ithaca, Poseidon turns the ship into a rock. That is, it turns it back to nature. And I think I read those passages with you last time where the Phaeacans see themselves as crossing the sea like men's thoughts without oars, as if they follow the thoughts of men. And I, and I said that's Homer's way of showing the power of technology, techne. That's, we get our word technology from the Greek word techne, which means to make. That the whole Phaeacian world uses nature or technology to master nature. What's the danger of that? It's um, blasphemy because to master, master nature is to master the gods because that's where the gods are. We Christians should look at it the same way. The danger is when we master nature we're trying to this is going to be really important next week because I'm going to go back and talk about the city and the origins of the city in scripture. We, in attempting to master nature, in some sense, we, we risk offending God because God is his whole order and he himself is present there at work. So they're punished. Odysseus is dropped off. He puts on a disguise and you know what happens. There's that scene where he comes home and as he approaches his house, the dog recognizes him. Argos on page, um, I can't look at it now, but um, page 261. But I've I, I got to pass over this quickly. The dog sees him. This is, this is wonderful. The dog sees him, and having seen him, he dies. It's as if he's been waiting for him to come home. 
So there's this, this, this responsiveness in nature that even a dog is faithful to us. And you know, dogs are notoriously faithful. I mean, they, they're so faithful to their masters. His, his master home, he can die. The interesting thing about that is the dog recognizes him. Where are the humans? I mean, Homer's so good. The problem with humans is their minds are in the way. I mean, truly, nobody recognizes him. Uh, finally, Telemachus comes home and the two reunite. And Unio, Umi, he stays with Eumaios, the swineherd. And think about this. This, is, this lines up with the Bible in an amazing way. He's a swineherd. It's the lowliest of lowliest taking care of swines. Think about that in the Old Testament. And it's the only time in the book that Homer comes out of himself because he constantly says in an apostrophe, what we call an apostrophe, and it's a direct address, he constantly says, oh, Eumaios. He keeps speaking to him, of him, not just telling a story. And the reason is because Eumaios' story is so touching. He was prince heir to a king. He was going to be a king. The Phaeacian woman, here it is again, betrayed him for possessions, sold him off, and he ends up being a beggar. But as a beggar, he's more faithful to Odysseus than he would have ever been as a king. So Homer's showing us indirectly once again that these possessions, that what people do with them are so disordered. And here's this lovely servant who was intended to be a king if he hadn't been betrayed. And, he's a, and he'll, be, he'll be with Odysseus when the fight unfolds. There's that evening the night before the, um, the battle when he visits with Penelope, even Penelope doesn't recognize him, and Euryclion does on page 292. I, I wish we had time. I, I'm going to fly over this stuff. Euryclion um, is bathing his feet, and when she does, she sees the scar, and then she knows it's Odysseus. But it's only because of the scar. And we learn then, this is so important, on 292, that his grandfather named him because of the place. Now there's a couple of important things to hold on to here. One is, his name comes from the earth, his place. It's one of the things that gives us our identity as a we. Not an I, a we. It's our attachment to the land. Think about Southerners. It's our attachment to the land that gives us our identity as a people, a we. He takes his name from his grandfather who named him for the land because the land is distasteful. Distasteful. So Odysseus, the word means distasteful. Wherever he goes, he brings pain. And I don't think that's an accident. Wherever he goes, he causes suffering. You know that wherever, the women, Circe doesn't want to let go of him. Calypso doesn't want to let go of him. They're forced to give up. They're forced to give, they, they're very possessive. They don't want to give him up. Um, he brings harm to the Phaeacians. <laughs> the ship's turned into a stone. He blinds Polyphi, poly, you know, wherever he goes. Why? Because a virtuous man will always make those around him feel their lack, their departure, their inadequacy. What was the effect of what Christ did everywhere he went, except with his disciples when he called them out? Was to cause trouble, except for those people who saw him for who he was. How many people see Odysseus for who he is? Almost none. He's prophesied. This is one of the lineups, by the way, with Christ. 
People are told he will come. Again and again and again, he comes and they don't see him. Okay, this is going to be crucial when we get to this in a second. One last thing, and then I want to get to the what to me is one of the major things leading to Christ. Um, 299. This is the night before the battle. Odysseus is outside and he can't sleep. He knows the next day he's going to go into battle. He may die. The bottom of 298. He struck himself on the chest and spoke to his heart and scolded it. Bear up my heart. You've had worse to endure before this on that day when the irresistible Cyclops said on that day. It's interesting that he refers to the Cyclops on this moment because it's Homer's way, I think, of setting this up. He's asking for a sign from Zeus. Zeus gives him a sign. He thunders. This is what the ancients called the taking of the auspices. The taking of the auspices. The taking auspices, omen, holy thing, the taking of the auspices. He asks for a sign, and a sign is given. By the way, the Catholic Church is absolutely in accord, absolutely in harmony. What happens next? Top of 301, immediately sent his thunder from shining Olympus, and Odysseus was happy. Now, what happens when an auspices come is you have to confirm it, a taking of the auspices. You have to look for a confirmation to make sure what you saw was right. Yeah? The Catholic Church does this all the time because they know the religious imagination can get away with a person, that a person very often makes claims that don't have the support of reality. So they have, to, they have to take real pains to make sure that what a person claims he saw, in fact, took place. Otherwise, the world would go nuts. I mean, I hope that's clear. Because the religious imagination is, is on a borderline between our world and another. It's a, it's a dangerous place. What happens next? This is what happens. From the house, a millwoman sent him an omen. Here's the confirmation. She was nearby where the shepherd of the host had set up his handmills, and there were 12 women, and all had been bending to grind the wheat and the um, barley flour, mince marrow. The others, since they had finished grinding their wheat, by now were sleeping, but this one had not ended her work, and she was the weakest. This is sad. She stopped the mill and spoke aloud, a sign for her master, yeah? A confirmation of the auspices, it's being given. Father Zeus, you are, who are Lord of the gods and people, now you have thundered aloud from the starry sky, although there is no cloud. You show this forth, important for someone. Grant now, does she know? No, but she's an instrument serving. Grant also now for, for wretched me this prayer that I make you, on this day, let the suitors take for the last and latest time their desirable feasting in the halls of Odysseus, for it is they who have broken my knees with hearts or labor as I grind the meal for them. Let this be their final feasting. She's an image of what the Cyclops do with people. They grind down their knees. Remember, he ground them, broke them up, and then ate them. She's an image of the effect of what the suitors do. This is an image of what the this is the image of the cyclops in the suitors. Is that clear? 
They, th that is, the, we use the word eating out of house and home. When kids begin to live on their parents, in one sense you have to say they're eating on them, they're feasting on them, they're taking them for granted, they're, they're breaking their knees down, grinding them up. So here's a woman who's describing herself as being ground up like flour for the feet, and this will be the last, she's saying, praying, this will be the last feasting. So here, the, the link between the Cyclops and the suitors is made explicit. And it was made explicit too, and Odysseus said, bear up my heart. You had to face worse than this with the Cyclops. So, so here in one scene, but we see it all the time, we, we get one link between the archetype experiences Odysseus has at sea and the men. Now the question is, what about the women? Um, but before we do this, I want to read something um, to finish this off, because we're about done. I've said that Odysseus is a new kind of hero, and one of the characteristics that he has as a new kind of hero is his use of language. That he uses language in a remarkable way, yeah? If, if he hadn't have used the nobody trick in the cave, he would never have escaped it and never got home. There's no way, Homer's really clear in this, there's no way physically he could have defeated the Cyclops. The Cyclops too powerful. He had to use cunning. And it was his use of language that got him out of the cave. And Cyclops, remember, Cyclops said, who are you? He said, I'm nobody. And when he wounds him, all the Cyclops come running and saying, who's hurting you by force or treachery? And Polyphemus says, nobody's hurting me by force of treachery, so he gets out. Here, I want to read this. The word calypso, the word calypso, comes from the Greek word calyptine. Hold on, sorry. The word calypso comes from calyptane, the Greek. The word calypso from calyptane, which means conceal. That word should be familiar to us because we use it all the time, even if we don't know it. The book of Revelation is called Apocalypse, which means uncover, right? The apocalypse. So calyp calypso means, from which we get apocalypse, uncover. Calypso means, the book of Revelation is, means to uncover these mysteries. It's, it closes the Bible. The word calypso means conceal, to conceal something. It's actually the root from our world. It's the, it's the cognate of whole, whole, or hell. Now, we're not in hell. That's a Christian. I mean, it's a Jewish. We're not in that world. But think about the associations here already in Homer. He's using the word calypso, which has these other derivative meanings, to mean conceal. For calypso to keep Odysseus is to keep him from his kleos. 
Because remember, every man has to come out to risk himself. Remember the pack, the swarm, the, the heroes went into it for protection, and there nobody has an identity. It's only when they come out that they have a name. And in Homer's world, nobody dies who isn't named. It's a way of honoring them. We saw the importance of Cleos in the world of the Iliad, that it's a man fulfilling his destiny, whatever that is. And in that book, it was to die, I mean, to give your life to. Here in the Odyssey, Odysseus is one of the greatest dangers he faces with Calypso because he's with her for eight years. That's, that's a measure of how great that power is over him. Um, Homer is using puns like this all the time. Remember the word fool. Um, napios means childlike, unable to use language. Can the Cyclops use language? Do they see well? Do they have the words? Remember, language here means words make available different multiple levels of reality. Through words, we can see different dimensions of things. The Cyclops have one eye. They're one-dimensional. They don't see. That's why Odysseus can get away with that trick when he says, my name is nobody. But listen to this. Punning's at the heart of what Homer does. After Odysseus and his men blind Polyphemus and his fellow Cyclops come to help, um, Polyphemus says, nobody, the word in Greek is Otis, Otis. Nobody's killing me. Otis is killing me. Appropriately, the other Cyclops conclude that if no one, Metis, is hurting him, he doesn't need their help. The two words they use, Metis, are almost indistinguishable from Metism, which means cunning. Ironies are piling on top of ironies. Odysseus is no one, nobody, not there and there. He's, he was prophesied to come. Do they see him when he comes? He's there and not there. Christ came. He was fulfilling a prophecy. Did the Jews see him? He was nobody there and not there. When he comes home, same thing. He puts on a disguise. He's cunning. So over and over again, Odysseus is this... And remember, he effaced, when, he puts, when he comes home, he effaces himself. He puts himself away because he has to find out what's going on. It's part of his prudence. So one of the distinguishing marks that he has is the same thing that Homer has, because remember, Homer is the storyteller. When Odysseus goes to Scaria, he tells stories. He uses words. He's a man of words, a man of many ways. He uses puns. So does Homer. Anybody reading this book in Greek would have learned to use puns. The fools are fools because they don't know how to use language. There's a way in which they can't enter into the world in its multiple dimensions because they don't have the means of doing it. Okay? So one last quote, and then I'm... When Odysseus and Penelope go to bed, this is what happens. They both tell their stories, and they weep. It's, I think it's important because both of them have stories. Remember what happened at Pylos? Nestor's wife almost wasn't there. She didn't exist. He was so full of himself, all he could do was tell his stories. She wasn't there. Um, on page 341, this is to wind it all up here now. 341. 
Sorry, I'm so long today. The two go to bed, two, line, this is 341, about line 240. As she would not let him go from the embrace of her white arms, um, now dawn of the rosy fingers would have dawned on their weeping had not the gray-eyed Athena planned it otherwise. She held the long night back at the outward edge. She detained dawn of the golden throne by the ocean and would not let her harness her fast-footed horses who bring the daylight to the people. This is extraordinary because what's happening in this moment are, is that the two of them step out of the epic world of past and suffering into a timeless moment. They share their stories and they are outside of that <coughs> epic world of you know it. So what's going on with them is exactly what happened with Achilles. He stepped out of that past into the present. He came out of that epic world into something new. This is what's happening here for the two of them. So in an amazing way, Homer's showing us there, there is this completeness that's possible for a man and a woman. And, and this is the image of the Iliad. Remember I showed you that circle where all the warriors participated? Even if they weren't Achilles, they all shared in it in some ways. All of these marriages share in this in some way. But what he's showing is the fullest possibility that a man and a woman can attain in the natural order. So how, how is Odysseus like Christ? <laughs> I always feel a little bit nervous when I come to this point. It seems to me there are several ways that he's like Christ. He's like Achilles in the sense of giving up his life, denying himself. He's had to deny himself again and again. But there are also other ways he's like Christ that's different from the way Achilles is. He calls himself nobody. It's prophesied that he will come. People don't see him when he comes. And when they don't, they suffer. And he brings something of a perfected nature to what he does. We call that virtue, prudence. Temperance, fortitude, justice, yeah. Christ was nothing if he was not virtuous. He was a god, obviously. He could bring things to our human nature that we couldn't. But in everything he did, he, sh he showed prudence, justice, temperance. There's one thing he did that no man could, I mean, to go to a cross to, to, to offer man a supernatural love, that takes us into the supernatural gifts, faith, hope, and charity. Then we're in another world. That takes us into a Christian world, faith, hope, and charity. But short of that, what we, what we see and what Christ does is virtuous. If you remember the Divine Comedy, remember going up purgatory, on, purgatory consisted of levels of sins, and at every level of sin, there was a virtue that man had to perfect in order to go on, because there's no way, there's no way any of us will see God until we are like him. We have to answer our sins. Who was the goat at every level? Mary. Because Mary exemplified every one of the virtues opposite the sin. What's the, what's the virtue opposite of pride? Humility. Humility. You know, I mean, I could, we could go. This isn't the time. I, mean, I'll, I, I may do that on our next class just to review that. But she was, and she, she was not divine. She is an exemplar of all of the human virtues in their perfection that we're talking about, okay? So he was nobody, not here and here. 
Christ was a man. <laughs> not here. God here and not here. So the paradoxes, the mysteries just multiply. He was self-effacing like Christ. He makes it possible to come out of our wombs into a new present. Nicodemus, am I to go back into my womb and be born again? No, you're born again of spirit. You come into a new world, a new creation. Marriage, he returns to his wife. He will not be who he was given to be without his wife. He and Penelope complete each other. They make possible a union. What they make clear in a way that wasn't true for the alien, man was made to love and to be loved. He cannot complete himself in, without that union. Here in this work, okay? To love and be loved. The apocalypse, Revelation, ends with Christ. If you've read the Revelation, you know the very end of words are, come bride. The Christ is the bridegroom coming home to bring the wife home, the body. It ends, come bride. That's how Revelation ends, come bride. The spousal images run through the Bible. The homecoming, returning home. We will see in divine God, the Divine Comedy that home is the New Jerusalem in heaven. It is God's kingdom. That's our home. And um, we have intimations of the parousia, coming home, the return of the king. He's coming home. He will bring judgment and truth. What happens when Odysseus comes home and reveals himself? There's this battle of judgment. He kills all the suitors and all the women, the maidservants, because they've been betraying Penelope, particularly the one the most faithful was betrayed. By the way, remember Melanthios? Melanthios is the shepherd who, who, who betrayed Odysseus because he went into the room and got all the armor for the suitors. Odysseus dismembers him. <laughs> Throw that out there. I want you to think about this. There, there's a professor at UD that thinks that Odysseus is not a hero. I, I disagree. I think he is in the natural order. But So he dismembered Melanthios. And interesting, re really, this is Homer's realism. Melantho was one of the women servants. She was a, a, a Penelope's faithful servant. She's the one who betrayed Penelope about the, the weaving. Their father helps Odysseus in the fight. So Homer's showing us that the father's a really good man. The two children, the brother and sister, are among the treacherous. So he's showing us just by virtue of the fact that you're in his family doesn't mean you'll all be protected, that certain things happen, that, that families cannot be a guarantee, that there's something higher going on here you know, that, that people need to be aware of. So the parousia, the return of the king, bringing judgment. It was in the Iliad, it's in the Odyssey, it's in the Aeneid. Um, and last, this mean that he is an image of the natural virtue man's capable of that Christ and Mary show us um, in the Christian world. So that brings our work to the Odyssey to an end. I know, sorry, I'm really sorry for this. There was just a lot to cover in this last. We should have done this in four or five meetings, but we've got to get on to Shakespeare. I'm sorry to do this so quickly. Any of you have any questions or comments or anything you want to... No? <laughs> Kathy, I thought you were leaving. I feel I like... You can't leave us. No, I knew if I came in here, I'd never leave. <laughs> <laughs> All of you read...
Merchant of Venice, and if you can read Merchant and Othello, do it because you'll put that Venetian world together. You all have a good week. All of you, keep Kathy in your prayers because she's going to have a hip operation. Pray for her seriously because I want her back here. I want her back here. Away from Monday. Yeah, I want to be back too. <laughs> and when is it Monday? Uh, a week.